Thanks be to God and thanks be to all of you. Um, if you would pray with me. God, be with us in this moment and in all moments, guiding our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, our steps. And if they should stray away from you, if our words should hurt instead of help, um, help us to start over again, to learn to be with one another and to one another anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is probably one of the most quoted, most famous passages in the Bible. And uh, it's not just because it's really good, although it is. Um, it was one of the most quoted passages in the Bible the first time that Jesus said it. <laughs> Jesus didn't come up with this phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting Deuteronomy. He is quoting thousands of years of Jewish tradition that has held, yes, it is complicated to be alive, and yes, there is a lot to figure out, and yes, our scriptures are filled with things that both guide us and inspire us and bamboozle us, but here's what it comes down to, is love. Here's what it comes down to is loving the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you let that be your lodestone, the rest will fall into place. So I've said this a thousand times, I've heard it a thousand times, and I love it every time. Um, but I'm also continually amazed at how there's always something new, <laughs> something extra, something that I haven't seen before. And in, in this time, in this Sunday, what I realized I didn't know um, was, I have a sense of what it means to love the Lord your God with your heart, right? With your feelings and the gooey middle of you and uh, showing those feelings of love to others would be a way to love your neighbors. I have a sense of what it means to love God with your soul, to pray and to reach up and out and down and out, uh, to let our souls be elevated to a place where we seek for them to be in constant communion with God. To love God with your strength sounds to me like acting and doing and being and making that love uh, loud and present. But I don't actually know what it means to love God with your mind. Uh, that's something that's uh, harder for me to figure out. Does it mean um, to become like super smart about how you love God? <laughs> Does it mean that all your mind ever thinks about is God? Would that, what it mean? Was, would that be what it means to love with your mind? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what Jesus meant. I wasn't sure what I've meant all of these different times that I've said it. But it's a good Sunday to be thinking about it. Because the mind is the arena of the Enneagram types that we're talking about today. The five, the six, and the seven. We've been in the middle of the series talking about the Enneagram, an ancient spiritual tool used by uh, several different cultures across the world, uh, now experiencing sort of a resurgence among open Christian communities. Um, and the first Sunday, we talked about the eight and the nine and the one, which are known as the gut triad or the anger triad. Those types tend to find themselves in challenge when it comes to their instincts, their gut and particularly when it comes to anger, that they either repress it or they express it in ways that aren't necessarily healthy for the people around them. The second Sunday, we spent on the shame triad or the feelings triad, the twos, the threes, and fours, who tend to find themselves tripped up by emotions and particularly emotion of shame and needing that shame to be covered up or taken away or repressed. 
Today, we've gone from the gut to the heart to the mind, to the brain. Um, five, six, and sevens have enormous gifts of the mind and character of the mind, but it's also their spot of danger. And uh, what your mind can lead you to, the most dangerous thing about your thoughts, I think, is what these types really teach us about what it is to be a human, which is fear and anxiety. Your mind can lead you into fear like nothing else, can lead you into anxiety like nothing else. Has anyone here ever described themselves or someone you know as an overthinker? Yeah, right? Or as someone who could uh, think your way into terror, <laughs> even if the, what is immediately present before you does not necessarily justify it? So these aren't unique traits to the five, six, and seven. All of us experience fear. All of us experience anxiety. All of us experience a mind that is sometimes our ally and friend and sometimes has thoughts that scare us or thoughts that don't help us or thoughts that lead us into um, places, habits, behaviors that we don't want to be in. This happens to all of us. But we can learn about it particularly well through the five, the six, and the seven. So I want to talk to you a little bit about who those guys are, if maybe one of them is you. I know not everybody has taken the, the assessment. And again, type 10 is personality tests are stupid. And if that's you, we love you, and that's totally fine. Um, so type five is also known as the observer. For fives, um, five, sixes, and seven all experience fear of the world, like fear of what will happen, fear of what will come next, fear um, of bad things. But they all deal with it in slightly different ways. Um, and so fives are known as the observer. They experience their fear of not knowing, fear of not being able to figure out, uh, and apply their mind to the world by trying to figure out everything they come across. They are the ones who uh, become the scientists and the researchers and who learn and who always have a fact and who are always are figuring out something new about what they're seeing in the world. They really pay attention. That's a huge gift of the fives. They pay attention and they want to know. And the things that they know can be transformative. But the danger of a five is that they can use that knowledge to distance themselves. That becoming an observer is a gift in what they see, but it can also become a defense mechanism. I observe, I don't participate, right? <laughs> because if I look at it, I see it, but I'm not a part of it, then it can't hurt me. Life can't get to me. So fives can find themselves withdrawing a little bit from the world, withdrawing a little bit from community and from people in a way that doesn't serve them. So gift and danger. Sixes uh, are given a lot of different names, but one of them is the loyalist. Sixes, six is the most common type in the world. Um, sixes are really interested in institutions and leaders and things and find themselves using their minds to devote themselves to a cause or a project or an institution. Um, but then they also will be either all in or all out. So they're all in on the leader or the institution or the project until they begin to have mistrust and then they're all out. Things are either totally great or totally bad. <laughs> there's no in-between of mixedness, of maybe there's something I could get out of this, but also it's flawed. Um, sixes make the world go round. They use their minds to make things happen. Um, but they also can, in their fear, use those institutions to control and to make sure that new things don't happen, that change doesn't happen, that things don't open up, um, because they're worried about what would happen if things changed, right? What, 
what might get out of control. Sevens have the most interesting strategy when it comes to fear of the world, and it's one that's probably familiar to many of us uh, in the particular media world we live in, which is they uh, distract themselves from their fear, right? So you can never feel afraid if you're constantly jumping from party to party, right? You can never feel afraid if you're constantly jumping from awesome hobby to awesome hobby, from painting to singing to, um, to spontaneous road trip, right? Uh, sevens are the life of the party. They're a lot of fun to be around, and they show us the gift of spontaneity. They add to the world a kind of loose energy that's a lot of fun to be around. They show us what it is to be enthusiastic. A lot of people will call the seven the enthusiast, um, and we are gifted by that enthusiasm. But when they're scared for the sevens, that enthusiasm can become uh, an excuse for never committing to anything. Because if you commit to something, again, it can scare you and it can turn bad, right? Um, it can become an excuse for never becoming a part of anything because if you did, that could be scary. It could go bad. So like all of the types, like all of the humans, there are gifts in this and there are dangers. And in some of that, we might find our own. But I also think there's something to think about in terms of how we use our minds in general that we see in all of these types and that we see in this scripture where Jesus first shares the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, that can teach us what it means to love with our minds. Because our minds are a gift. God didn't give us brains not to use them or to ignore their conclusions, right? Our minds are a gift. Thinking things through is a gift. But what would it mean to use your mind for love instead of for fear? And as we get into that in this scripture, I want to say, we can get into a lot of historical traps about how we talk about some of the groups that are talked about in the scripture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, um, all of these subgroups of Judaism that Jesus interacts with as his fellow co-religionists. Jesus is Jewish. Um, there is a long tradition in Christianity of uh, painting all those groups with a really broad and negative brush. So, oh, you're being Pharisaic if you're being too legalistic or too mean. Um, the Pharisees were like a diverse group of human beings, just like every religious sect that has ever existed. Some of them were great. Some of them had their problems. Uh, Jesus interacted with them so much because they were a part of his community, and he loved them, right? They aren't an other. They are a part of his community. Um, same with the Sadducees, same with the Zealots. They represent trends in religious life and understanding that happen to all of us all the time, none of which are without merit completely, and all of which Jesus cares for and cares about. It's not bad to care about the law, and it's not bad to care about thinking about how we should live, which is what the Pharisees always cared about. The question is just, how do you do it? How do you apply your mind to the life of faith? And I think we see two examples in this text that can help us see what it means to apply our mind in a way that is life-giving to the world and to ourselves and in the name of Jesus Christ. There are two big questions in this scripture. The first one is the question that Jesus is asked, right? So let's bring up that scripture again. I don't want to accidentally quote one of the other shamas. This is a problem. I always quote the wrong synoptic gospel. That is the Lord's Prayer. Also great, but not the script. Okay, here we go. So teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And it says that they're testing him, right? Which is not 
bad. <laughs> because we know the end of the story and know who Jesus is, we get mad about this testing thing. But if someone came up to you and kept indicating that they might be the Messiah, you would also want to test that proposition. That's like a <laughs> extremely reasonable and like good thing to do. If someone ever comes up to you and implies that they're the Messiah, ask them some follow-up questions. <laughs> good job, Pharisees. Um, so they say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is a good question, but the way that they're asking it, they only want one kind of answer. Or they basically want him to not be able to answer, right? Um, they are a little bit scared of him, a little bit scared of what he might mean. They're suspicious. They think that he might not have the best interests of the community at heart. He might not do good stuff. And so they ask him a question with the intention of entrapment. There's no way to answer this question. And so you will prove yourself to be wrong. Whatever way you answer it will be gross or terrible. Um, and that's one way we can use our minds, right, is to close the possibilities. We can use our minds to say, there's only one right answer, there's only one narrow way, there's only one thing I want from the world, and I'm going to use my mind to justify it, or to prop it up, um, or to make me feel control in a world that actually is chaotic, to make me feel like I have control in a world where I actually never do, <laughs> right? We use our minds to close the possibilities. Only this thing can happen. Only this thing is okay. Only this thing is correct. Uh, and th that, you know, doesn't work out. And also Jesus answers it with love, right? I, I kind of, I see where you're going. And there actually is an answer, <laughs> which is that greater than anything else is love. Love of God and love of one another. And then Jesus asks a question using his mind to explore how we might use our minds in our faith. And he asks a different kind of question that also sort of has no answer, but it's a much more intriguing kind of no answer. So let's go to that, that question. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? David's son, they replied, right? We've, we've read this. We know this story. The Messiah, when he comes, will be the son of David. It says so in the book. We know the answer. We're going to do great on our SATs. Um, then how is it that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool? If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? So he's quoting from the same story they're quoting from. Yes, it says that the Messiah will be the son of David, but it also says that David calls him Lord. And we don't call our kids Lord, right? We're not like, hello, Mr. Child of mine. Like, how you doing? Hello, King Child of mine, you know? Um, and so he's saying there's something, there's a contradiction here. This is, if anybody ever tells you that you're not allowed to read the Bible you, the way you read the Bible, Jesus is like, look at this contradiction in the scriptures. Isn't it interesting? So follow Jesus' path. Contradictions in the scripture are great. Um, and, and he says, there, here's a thing that doesn't make sense to me. Here's a thing that doesn't make sense to anyone. And he opens it up. And what the scripture says is that nobody can figure out how to talk, and so they just stop talking. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's what Jesus wanted. <laughs> I think Jesus asked this question because he wanted the talking to go on forever. He's pointing out to them, you ask me questions about the scripture like you think there's only one right answer. 
let me ask you a question about the scriptures that shows you we could talk about this forever, <laughs> that shows you we could wonder about this forever, that shows you there are layers upon layers and mysteries upon mysteries in something as big as God and as big as the Bible. Look, the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord. How weird, how awesome, <laughs> how great. Because Jesus isn't saying that to make the point that there is no Messiah, right? Jesus uh, thinks that there is one. <laughs> um, he's using it to open up. Maybe things are deeper than we ever thought. <laughs> Maybe things are more complicated than we ever thought. Maybe there is not just one right answer when we ask a question about the scriptures. For him, he uses his mind to love the Bible and to love the world, not by closing it in, by making only one answer, by making things more rigid or more hard or more like a brick. He uses his mind to open things up and make the world feel like an ocean of possibilities. <laughs> he uses his mind to open things up and wonder about the fullness of who God might and could be. I think that's what it means to love God with our minds, is to use our minds to loosen ties rather than bind them up, to see more of what God could be rather than to see less. And God is inviting us to wonder. As I was reading about the fives, the sixes, and the sevens, um, because those three types are often plagued with anxiety, and also in modern society, almost all humans are plagued with anxiety, um, one of the things I kept reading was anxiety, um, one of the things that it does, and this is how I experience it too, I don't know if this is how you experience it, is that um, in almost every situation, anxiety is very good at making your mind think about what the worst possible outcome of a situation is, right? What if I do this seemingly innocuous or slightly risky thing, and then it becomes the worst thing in the world, and everything falls apart, and it's all terrible? <laughs> your mind is very good at using itself to come up with these catastrophic possibilities. Everything I read said, the other side of that is, if you're a person who experiences anxiety, the other side of that is, your brain is very good at coming up with possible scenarios. And so one thing that your brain could be really good at is being creative, <laughs> is thinking about the best possibility, or the strangest possibility, or the newest possibility. If you are a person who experiences anxiety a lot, your brain is really good at coming up with scenarios that come to be. And in the same way that that sometimes plagues you, it could be an enormous gift that you use to see new things in the world and new parts of who God can be. So, loving God with our minds. I want to say, as I was thinking about loving God with our minds, it's been a week where a lot of stuff has been happening. <laughs> um, and I think it was interesting to me um, to see... Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, attempt to justify inhuman policies at the border of separating children from their families. Of, and I think it's important not to lose all of these other things that are happening too, um, of no longer granting asylum for folks experiencing domestic violence and gang violence, of attempting to um, go into areas and places of life that people have not before when people are doing their work, are taking care of their kids and attempting to um, deport them from there, that one of the ways he attempted to justify particularly this inhuman separation at the borders policy, this unacceptable and unnecessary policy, was that he quoted the Bible and he said, the Bible supports following the law. 
the Bible supports following the law. Um, and we could talk about Romans 13 forever. If you, after worship, want to hear about why that is not what Paul is saying, <laughs> why, in fact, Paul, while he was writing that, was preparing to go to jail for breaking the law, and so that can't possibly be what Paul means, we could talk about that forever, but that would actually be stepping into the game. The game <laughs> that that is a kind of thing that can be decided by our minds figuring out the right interpretation of a verse somewhere in the scriptures, when everything about the God who the scriptures point to, the God who in the end the scriptures are supposed to be about, not an idol in and of themselves, that God tells us that there could be books in the Bible about following the law and it would be wrong to separate families, right? That we know who God is and we know who the Spirit is and our minds and our conscience tell us this is wrong in a way that does not have to seek to justify or argue, but knows. Knows what is right, knows what is of God, knows what must stop. And so I want to do a little thing with you guys. One of the other ways our minds get in the way of us making change in the world is that we get like scared about weird stuff. Um, so I find myself, almost every single time I call one of my representatives about something, I feel nervous about it in a way that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, nothing bad is going to happen. It's extremely easy. No one's going to be mean to me. And if they are, I get to vote for somebody else. Um, but it, it feels weird every time I pick up the phone. Anybody else feel this, right? Like it's strange or it's funny. Um, and so I'm just going to do it right now so that we all, yeah, so that we all know how this works. So here's how this works. You, if you Google who are my representatives, the first three things are totally accurate. Put in your address, you'll figure out who they are. If you don't know who your senator is, don't worry about it. We've all been there. You can find out online. So you can go there and you can get the phone number. It'll be right there. You click that phone number. I happen to have mine in my recent calls because I have called the last several days. Um, so it's a 202 number. That's DC's area code. So I'm going to call. Yep. Uh, and you can also call the Illinois number, right? So I'm going to call. I'm going to put it on speaker. Yeah, right? Is this making other people nervous by association? Our senators can't be mean to us, guys. They're not allowed. No, exactly. But so I'll be leaving a message. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for calling the office. But I'm going to ignore that and leave a message because they care more. Hi, I'm Hannah Clem, a constituent of Senator Duckworth. I've been really distressed seeing um, recent border policies escalate in human practices of separation of families at the border. I really hope that Senator Duckworth is already supporting the Keep Families Together Act, and I would love for her to come up with other creative ways that we can be um, honoring what we should do, which is respecting all immigrants, refugees, and asylees, and treating them in the best ways possible. Um, and so I hope to see her advocating for that as strongly as she can. Uh, Thanks for your time. Bye. See? It's so easy. And all you have to do is do that two, three, four times. 
eight minutes a day, uh, right? And other things you can do are, one thing I'm gonna do this week is I'm gonna call everybody I know who's an immigrant from anywhere. People are feeling super at risk. Their families are feeling super at risk. They feel like bad things are about to happen because they are, not because of anxiety, <laughs> because of rationality. And we wanna be there for each other and we wanna love each other. Um, we want to reach out to any organizations that you know where you can volunteer. I think this is one beautiful thing about us participating in the Good Neighbor Team at this time, is we can say who our church is, who God is, and who we wanna be. Um, but I wanted to show you that because I get nervous about it. I think you might get nervous about it. You don't have to be nervous. And if you feel better about doing it with people, have a little five-minute party after worship. Have a little five-minute party at your work. These things, uh, the thing that combats fear is not bravery, it's love. <laughs> Jesus says a thousand times in the Bible, do not fear. And he also says a thousand times to love, to love people and to love our community. And to love with our minds means to use our minds to show that love to the world. It means to rely on one another. So let's do that. And let's give each other tips and let's help each other out. And as we feel fear, let us know that that's not the last thing we're going to feel. And love will always make a way. Amen? Amen.